And actually, it's it's quick cricket day at school tomorrow, so it's not actually going to be that bad. I'm going to get so many wickets. <laughs> they are only four, but they will count. Cut away. Cut away for four. Carlos Brathwaite. Remember the name. And my goodness, it's gone way down to Swansea. Finishes off in style. I was, I was sat in the cabinet room and I was like hosting me on meeting. The big man, the fridge is open. He's flown like a gazelle. What can Chris Gale do? He goes long. Oh, you right. You've got a man beside you. He's got it. England have won the World Cup by the barest of margins. Hello and welcome to The Wrong One. I'm Bertie Moores and I'm joined by Max Parry who has transferred from his uh, girlfriend's uh, front room and in a much less hungover state than a post-FA Cup final version of Max Parry, hence why we didn't record a, uh, a podcast for the second ODI, but you're here now. I'm here now, yeah, I'm, I'm fighting fit and ready to go, ready to talk some cricket. Yeah, post-second ODI, I, th- I think no listener needed to hear my horse scratchy post-celebrate. I, I, I sound effect here. You don't sound, you don't sound well, let's say. No, no, that is a, that is an alcohol-fueled illness, I think, is what you'd call that. So despite England winning the series uh, by the second game, in, in which we can ultimately say that actually in a lot of ways it was very similar to the first game in that uh, Willie got some wickets, Billings got some runs, uh, England collapsed a bit, then recovered, Curtis Camfer got Ireland's best score and then he got a wicket or two. So it really wasn't that different, but it seems very suitable to actually dig into depth this third game in which probably this is Ireland's most significant victory that they've had in about the past decade. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. I mean, the, the next one that comes to mind is obviously the the 2011 win in uh, Bangalore in the World Cup, which you would presume is more significant given that it was in a major tournament. Um, I think this is this is a huge win for Irish cricket in terms of the new Super League qualification tournament for the World Cup. They get 10 points that I don't believe, well, Perhaps they did believe that they would get 10 points, but I think after being thoroughly dispatched in the first two ODIs, they, I, I think, you know, the, 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 the realist amongst them would probably have, have thought they would lose 3-0. I think the only, the, only, the only sort of shame part, of, you know, the, the only part of this that is a shame, I guess, is that the, the win has come at 2-0 rather than at 1-0 or uh, 0-0. But it's a huge win for Irish cricket. And, you know, I think... Even as England fans, it's pleasing to see associate nations turn up and beat bigger nations because it's a great advert for cricket and it can only help grow the game, which is something that we should all want. And we try our best not to be incredibly biased in favour of England. We, we, we try, but we're, we're, only, uh, we're only English at the end of the day. So, so if that ever does seep in, it's just, just what happens. But in this game, I think England fans watching it, we were all watching it at home, we were thinking in our heads this this game sort of means in a way nothing for England it's a team of their 1.5s with a lot of players who'll be cycled out anyway in front of an empty ground but to Ireland every game against England means so much uh, England already won the series as well and you could see how much one victory means to the whole of the the backroom staff the team a two-one, a consolation win at the end of a three-match series in front of nobody was so so valuable for them, valuable for them, and will be so so valuable for Irish cricket. And more than anything, 
I think that game is a psychological victory for the Irish and it's a psychological defeat for England. In the grand scheme of things, it probably won't mean much to the English, but to Ireland, it means an awful lot. As you said, uh, Matt Roller for Crick Info had written an article where he was interviewing uh, Kevin O'Brien and uh, and he tweeted out basically saying that it's the only the only match that anyone really associates with Irish cricket and Irish cricket has come such a long way in those intervening 9 years and although i think there were six members of that side in 2011 who were part of this ODI squad for this series a couple of them didn't make it but there's a lot of players still around the setup from where they were 9 years ago but that shouldn't give you the illusion that Irish cricket hasn't changed in any way because that set of players has carried them a long way, but they're now entering into a new and much more professional test level arena for Irish cricket. And they've got so many young players coming through. It might be uh, Tector or uh, Gareth Delaney or even Curtis Camphor, who they've actually started poaching players from other countries. Ireland is now beginning to really write a much more professional history into its game and this is I think one of those first important steps for them along with playing in their first test match against Afghanistan the other year and playing against playing against Pakistan in a test match the beginning to start to mark those big milestones of being a proper cricket team yeah I think that's true and I don't think it will be long especially you would presume Irish conditions are, are very similar to English conditions in fact they might even be more English for want of a better phrase, than English conditions, in that uh, you would presume that Irish wickets will be green and seam around and be very seam bowler friendly. You would think in that, in light of that, that actually the first test win against a big nation that for whom those conditions are unfamiliar um, actually might not be that far away. And that will be another huge scout for Irish cricket. I, I, I think this, this win for Ireland is, as you sort of alluded to, it's like it was an it was a win for everyone really because England it doesn't matter you know it I think it might have mattered if there were more of the of uh, the, the ones if you like rather than the 1.5s um, as we refer to them I mean if anything it matters to the individuals that failed for England because I think a lot of their careers actually now there are names that I'm sure we'll get into are pretty done their stats are actually pretty poor this defeat will reflect very badly but for England cricket moving forward I don't think this is detrimental really it's only positive for Ireland and that means it's only positive for world cricket as a whole so you know everyone's a winner the fact that we always seem to talk about for the good of world cricket I don't think many other sports would really be doing this in in much the same way I mean the idea that you need to raise the ecosystem around England and Australia and India if you're fans of those teams is important for those fans because they want to see them playing against sides who are competitive and are interesting and giving us, us the best series as possible. Victories like this for Ireland, hopefully, you'd like to think, don't just... Uh, it's a big psychological victory for the country and marks those milestones, but you like to think that these are gradually becoming more and more regular moments as sides like Ireland and Afghanistan build themselves into the kind of permanent cricket community. Yeah, 100%. I think cricket has, you know, it's it's a colonial game. It is not played by that many nations at an elite, elite level, a top, top level. And that is a problem that is faced for a very, very long time. I agree entirely that 
it is in the interest of the nations that have all the money that smaller nations actually have more money because if the game is stronger you presume it is a more marketable product for you know it's a horrible way of looking at the game but if you're concerned about pounds and pence uh, or australian dollars um you it is ultimately in your interest as a marketer of the game or as a as a governing body uh of, of, of a nation for the test series and the odi series and the t20 world cups and the series that you play to be competitive and interesting so people watch them and so people spend money on them i'll be honest like this island series and maybe it would have been packed out maybe it would have been sold out i struggle to see that in normal in normal normal circumstances in between a test series between the west indies and pakistan i struggle to see an island odi series being sold out but if ireland have the potential to win and we can perceive ireland as being a genuine threat and, and a team that are worth turning up and watching which let's face it in the first couple of odis you could be forgiven for thinking actually they are a real rung down i think yeah, it's important that amidst all the discussion about the sort of what's happening within world cricket that not only in the case of the match yesterday that you see like a feel-good story where Ireland beat the current world champions in a, a, of ODI cricket. But you can get a sense with Ireland that it's a part of something much greater and throwing back to that interview with Kevin O'Brien, uh, a lot of players have played their role in progressing Irish cricket to, in effect, the test level. But they're coming into a different era where not only do you sense that they are having a lot of a real great batch of young players come through, but also that they might be able to attract players who are playing in potentially won't break into the first team of uh, of other Test nations, but may have uh, may have relations with Ireland through their parents or their grandparents, which could encourage them to come and play for Ireland and, and boost Irish cricket. But structurally as well, when you look at uh, when you look at the regional setup in Ireland, uh, when you look at uh, how they're preparing the national ground and and the work they're doing around that, there's a real sense of consistent progress which i think is a really encouraging thing to see even when it comes to things like a european t20 league where they're talking about having it with scottish and and netherlands teams ireland are part of some of the most interesting sort of forward moving just sort of hopeful stories in cricket at the moment yeah i think that's true one one area that i think they they would readily admit well there are a few there are a number of areas that they would readily admit need work they're still let's face it they competed very well uh it sounds patronizing to say that and i I didn't mean it as such but they competed very well against england in that final game they deserved to win england were playing a second string side and i refuse to believe that they would have turned england over had england had all their players fit so there's still there's still a long way to go for them to be considered a genuine threat against top teams and i think one area that they will definitely need to improve domestically in order to continue to churn out the level of players your kevin o'brien's um, your Paul Sterling's, your Craig Young, those sort of players. To, to churn out those sort of players, they need a more coherent and more developed domestic county system. Irish domestic cricket is not developed to the level that it needs to be in order for them to, to, to essentially produce the players to compete at a proper international level. I think that's fair. I mean, there's, there's three provinces in Ireland. There's, uh, there's Leinster Lightning, Northwest Warriors and uh, Northwest Warriors and uh, Northern Knights. 
But in a way, I think that's a li- all the sort of suggestions as they really do need to build up their first class setup or county setup, whatever you want to call it. In a way, I think that's a little bit unfair because Ireland's a country of about five million people. There's it, it it's a small country where cricket is obviously not as big a sport for people on the street as it is in England. I think it's all it's always going to be an uphill battle for them to be able to compete outside the rung of probably in the long run, West Indies and Afghanistan, Zimbabwe and Bangladesh. It's always going to be very difficult for them to do that because ultimately you can't create numerous professional sides within the country. I don't know whether in the long run, if it if it might be that there, become, there becomes to have conversations of, well, should the Irish provinces be integrated into the county system? You never, you never really know. Uh, but it, but it is difficult for them. But and I think in a way, at the moment, we should just acknowledge the 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 distance that they've covered so far. To be honest, yeah, absolutely. And I, and and I can see the strength of that argument. And I guess the other side of the coin to the argument I've made is that given under a small nation and have a very small cricketing population, especially at a top level, actually to create more counties would be to dilute the standards of the size that compete. And therefore, perhaps expose your domestic players to a to a reduced uh, standard of cricket, you know, on the domestic scene, which would not be to the, uh, you know, would not be in the interests of the Irish uh, national team. But I think because ultimately, remember as well, remember as well that Ireland can. It's very easy for Irish players to play in the county championship, and I really hope that in the long run they don't end up developing overseas status as players. Yeah, I mean that would be. Yeah, of course that's important. I think that's it's it's definitely true that the Irish players will undoubtedly benefit from playing in the county system. I just wonder whether for the health of Irish cricket, you know, consistently having your best players go over the Irish Sea and play for Glamorgan and Northampton, Essex and Warwickshire and Durham or whatever. I mean, you got Tim Murtagh at Middlesex. I don't know that that's really in the interest of Irish cricket. You might make a better Irish national team, but surely the ultimate ambition for Cricket Ireland should be to foster a genuinely progressive, positive cricket culture on the island of Ireland. You know, it, it, it will be tough. Of course it will be tough. But look, Ireland are on their way and I think that there, there shouldn't be anyone in, in world cricket that should be displeased about that at all. On the game itself, away from the broad narratives of Irish cricket, Ireland probably completely outplayed both in the England in both the bowling and batting department. When you look at the scorecard... Ireland did very well to get that top order out in effect. And and as we said on the last podcast, England's batting depth is so great that eventually it will it will begin to stick and you and Ireland won't be able to skittle England out. That's exactly what happened. But they did well to restrict them to within uh, a reachable total, particularly when uh, Tom Banton and Owen Morgan have been playing so well. They managed to stop them getting up to 350, which I think would have been very difficult, even on a very good batting pitch. And then they come in and Paul Sterling and Balburnie just absolutely hammer it around the park. Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest, as much as I think Ireland deserve a lot of credit for winning this game, Paul Sterling, unbelievable batting performance, and obviously Andrew Balburnie as well. I thought England did really give them the initiative and it was the sort of performance of a side that are 2 nil up in a series against an associate nation. I mean, Jason Roy, bang out of Nick, played a very, very loose shot. Uh, Johnny Bairstow, absolutely appalling shot. James Finn's got a good ball. And I thought Craig Young bowled very well. I thought he bowled really well. I know Morgan 
you know, got just a magnificent hundred for England. But I thought Trey Young actually with a short ball really tested him, clonked him on the helmet a couple of times. And that's how you would bowl at Morgan. They probably didn't bowl short enough, actually, the England captain. But it, 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 it was strange because England's, I thought England's batting innings was one that was sort of punctuated by a, a, a midpoint uh, peak, if you like, where you felt England were just going to go on and get way too many runs. Uh, they were on about 17 overs, their partnership, Banton and, uh, Banton and Morgan. And they were going at about eight and over for those 17 overs. They were really so much bouncing along that I think a lot of people were thinking, well, could Morgan get to a double hundred here? Like it was, it was so fluent without fault that yeah. it's for, for, for a batting performance in which, in which uh, there's a lot of players on single figures and, and sort of uh, teens level of, bat- of, uh, of numbers. There were actually some really great periods in it for England. Yeah. And, and, and this is my point that actually it, it, I felt like England had the initiative. They, they gave the initiative away. I don't think many of their the top order, as I've mentioned, Roy Bairstow, Finn's got a decent ball, but didn't move his feet. Um, I, I felt that they gave the initiative to Ireland in the first instance, won it back with Morgan and Banton, who were absolutely explosive and fantastic. And Banton only strengthened his case, although I think he would have felt he should have gone on because he was very much set on a on a seriously flat wicket. But England wrestled back the initiative, then seemed to give it back again. And you felt, oh, England are actually could be skilled out for under 300 here. That could give Ireland a sniff and it would be quite an interesting game. But then England once again took the initiative and David Willey hit a few runs as did Tom, Tom Curran and you felt actually, well, they're over 300 now. You know, they've got too many. I'm pretty sure Niall O'Brien actually said on comms that Andrew Balburnie, you know, Ireland like chasing and he's given his side the best chance by uh, inserting England and bowling first, but that plan hasn't worked. I'm pretty sure he used that phrase during England's innings. Um, so you felt at the halfway point, although it had been a bit of a topsy-turvy uh, first innings for England, actually England was still banging control. There was no universe in which they wouldn't win. Um, and and then the bowling performance happened and we realised what a flat wicket it was and how poorly England had actually executed, a, a, you know, an, or, uh, executed their plan from an excellent position. And uh, look, Ireland's top order batsmen deserve a, a lot of credit. I think England's bowlers, you know, will, will regret their performance massively. On Ireland's bowling, I think it's very fair to say that England, 190 for three. Owen Morgan is bouncing along at about 120 strike, 120 odd strike rate. Just got his hundred. Tom Banton can hit it anywhere in the park. He's going at more than run a ball, and to go from 190 for three to 216 for seven is real credit for Ireland because even though they, there was a there was a healthy sort of 70 odd uh, partnership for the eighth wicket with uh, with uh, Willie and Curran as uh, Willie, yeah, it was Willie and Curran. Even though there's a healthy partnership there, it, that seemed to really sort of slow England down. And England were really realistically at 193 on for 400. And I know I look at this in hindsight, and Ireland gone on to chase the game, but they did very well to to keep their heads, get those two men out, and just sort of keep plugging away and get them within a total which was was gettable. And we'd seen earlier in the series, Paul Sterling hadn't really sort of produced anything, but he sort of came out in this in this in this match with a sort of with a real momentum. And I think if you've got a player like him who when he gets going, he really gets going. He knows how to find the boundary. I, like he doesn't look like the sort of player who's going to be going for quick singles. Let's be honest. I think. <laughs> do you think that Paul Sterling would get into your 
kind of could play local league 11 oh i mean he certainly looks like it i I imagine he's probably first to the bar you know uh, upon completion of the game but then again that's the beauty that's the beauty of of cricket it, you know you the game doesn't lend itself to larger chaps but it can accommodate you know the larger gentlemen i mean we just watched the uh the west indies series Raheem cornwall certainly falls into that category paul sterling somewhat more stout but um, there's something there's something about the way he plays that that when he hits it it's like he's coming in at number seven on a Saturday afternoon and he's coming he's he's there for a good time not a long time but deep down he's a much better player but when he hits it he hits it hard like six sixes he hit in his 142 uh nine fours I mean when you can always tell by the ratio of fours to sixes uh how aerial they like to go but when someone like him gets going then it, it does become difficult for England to put the brakes on because it, he, he can put Ireland into such a good position from a run rate perspective. And we saw when he got out about 60 runs short, they're only two wickets down and they've got nine nine overs to do it. Like he keeps them in line with the run rate because that's what looked to be the real concern at some point. Yeah, and... I mean, look, Paul Sterling, as you say, is one of the established names in the island order. He's one of the recognisable names for someone who would follow county cricket in relatively close detail, but wouldn't necessarily know many of Ireland's other players. Paul Sterling is obviously a player who sticks out, has performed very well on occasion, well, on a number of occasions for Middlesex. Um, as we say, is an explosive power hitter. And if it wasn't for him, Ireland wouldn't have got anywhere close, I don't think. But credit must also go to Andrew Balberni because... He went at a run of ball. He he didn't allow the innings to stagnate. He gave the strike to Sterling incredibly well. Um, I, I understand Balburnie and Sterling are really good pals. That was I think that's been trotted out on comms a hell of a lot. Um, so I think it was it was the way that the partnership grew and the way that they uh, worked in tandem and in each other's interests almost um, that enabled Ireland to get so close. I mean Sterling on on Sterling he. He's an interesting figure because, as I say, he's a recognisable name and an explosive power hitter. He's got nine ODI hundreds, which sounds actually quite impressive. How many of those matches are actually against elite-level nations, though? Because Ireland don't get five-match ODI series against Australia and Pakistan and India like everyone else, like a lot of teams do. And that's yeah, and that is a very fair point. Um, you would you would you would presume most well. We know that most of their fixtures are against the likes of the UAE, uh, Afghanistan, Canada, Kenya those sort of nations and ultimately you can only beat who's in front of you i guess i would say to that then you would he would probably want a few more odi hundreds given that he plays against those caliber of nations and he is a you know a, a county championship top order player he's a, you know he's an established county name but it should not be forgotten that you know paul, paul sterling is an absolute linchpin for this irish side and he you know his his stock I don't know. He probably already, you know, has, has has something of legendary status within Irish cricket, but I think it will only cement that now. Uh, Kevin O'Brien, I thought, finished it off really well and marshalled Harry Tector, who it was bizarre Tector's innings because he looked for all the world to be scrambling, unable to get back on ball, unable to... I mean, it was that horribly unenvious position of when you're there, you're so, you're on the precipice of victory. We must have all been there when it seems all you need to do is to just rotate the strike. You need to go a run a ball or so. Six and, and over. Just, yeah, six and over. And you cannot for the life of you get back on ball. You, you, you're trying to hit the cover of it. And with every missed shot, 
you just want to hit the ball harder. And I thought it was to Kevin O'Brien's credit that he went down to Tetra on a number of occasions and just, you know, I think you would presume reminded him of that need just to get back on ball. And going back to England, you would say that they they massively missed their opportunities against Tector because, you know, you looked at Curran's slower balls and stuff. Tector can get them away for Toffee. And then and then Curran, on a couple of occasions, gave him exactly what he wanted, which was an 80-mile-an-hour half volley. And Tector, to his credit, said thank you very much and placed it to the boundaries. So as much as Ireland deserve credit, and they certainly do, England will also think, my God, we have handed them the opportunities that they, that they took. The uh, Winvis on uh, on Crickvis, even uh, I think they were two hundred and thirty nine for one at that point, and the Winvis was still fancying England. It was still like sixty forty. So even when you get to that stage, England with their on paper, their bowlers should have been in a position where they could have should have been able to to limit Ireland and made it difficult for them. I think I think the the real game changer at, at the death, which to me, as soon as it happened, I thought this this isn't going to go England's way. Was uh, was David Willey's no ball six, which then went yeah. for a wide the next ball, and then the free yeah. hit the next ball went for a single. So in effect, it was nine runs off one ball, and then that suddenly pulls Ireland back into in, into just sort of kind of, yeah, as you said, rotating the strike distance that they can just keep chipping away at six and over and then that might leave them eight or nine to get at the end. That seemed to me the big moment and I think from the bowling perspective it was interesting because, okay, uh, Willie generally has had a good series. He took a five for in the first game. He, he, hit, a, he hit a nice crisp pass century in this game but it was interesting seeing these players in effect just put into a position where it's like, right, this here's a bit of pressure for you. They've got to get this amount. They've got a lot of wickets in hand. How do you restrict yeah. them? And a selection of uh, of Curran and Willie and Mahmood at the death ultimately didn't do that. And I think that will be something which I would imagine. I don't know about you would would sit in the selectors' minds when it comes to coming ODI series. One hundred percent. And I think that's what. And at the top, that's why I I really believe and 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 still feel that. It's not damaging to England cricket, this defeat. It's very positive for Irish cricket. It's great for global cricket. The only individuals that this is a terrible result for are the individuals that are on the precipice of the England side and have been wanting to stake a claim and thus far had staked a claim. I think you can include Billings in that, who who played a very poor shot for his dismissal and be disappointed. Um, but Curran, Willie, Mahmood's a young player, so you can excuse him. He's still got a lot of potential. Yeah. And Curran's a young player, but, you know, Current and but Willie especially, the talk about Willie was never whether he could do it at the top of the order with the new ball swinging it back. We all knew he could do that. The question was actually, are you a good enough bowler at the death, and are you bet are you a better bowler at the death than the bowlers that England have selected? You know, Archer, Wood, uh, uh, Wokes, Plunkett obviously wasn't the setup. Are you a better death bowler than those guys? And there was always a question mark about that. And I think the selectors now will be justified in thinking, no, we were right. You aren't quite good enough at the death. Um, I mean, let's face it, as pressure situations go, this 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 doesn't really compare to the sorts of ODI games that we've seen in the last 18 months or so. You know, it, it is incomparable to the final against New Zealand or the, the, the run of games that England had to win to get to the final. So 
for David Willey, I know he he got man of the series and his interview made me laugh because I didn't realise he's he's something of a geezer, is David Willey, which I didn't I didn't think. But uh I think he he will this defeat will really leave a bit of a bitter taste because he's sort of proven the selectors point and proven them right in not selecting him for the World Cup. His death bowling I thought was very poor. Tom Curran as well. Tom Curran bowled really good slow balls and then he just bowled hit me half volleys. So yeah, England's one point five, I think, have probably served to actually consolidate their positions as uh, talented placeholders. They're not, I don't think anyone in that lineup really has put their hand up and said, you need to actually include me in the, in the, in the first choice England 11. Yeah, when it comes to first choice, I definitely agree that, that Willie, Willie has put himself within, within the 13 to be selected, but he's, if, 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 you, were, if you were in those 1.5s, you, you really had to nail down a, a, f- a flawless 10 out of 10 performance as much yeah. as you can because yeah. you remember we know the quality of the players that are coming in and even when it comes down to something like the death bowling then we know how good Archer is at it and so if Willie has that opportunity and ultimately it doesn't quite pull off it's, it's, it's one game of cricket and we know that you should never judge a player off one game of cricket but if you're really trying to prove yourself then a series against Ireland you've really got to got to stick the landing every time now I think the player who actually a lot of people have almost forgotten about but has come out worst in this series is Moeen Ali now we know how good a bowler Rashid is but Moeen's in there in effect as an all-rounder a, a player who when it get when England have a collapse he can come in and change the game now England's batting performances didn't end up really being particularly hampered by Moeen's batting but when it come when it came to with the bat he scored a total of one run didn't bat in the first uh first uh ODI, he got a duck in the second and he only got one in the third. But he also bowled 25 overs in total across the three games and didn't get one wicket. Now, okay, he he, he did well to tide Ireland over uh, by re- restricting the run rate in, uh, in the first two ODIs. But he was part of a, a wider bowling attack that was doing very well and they were running through them. So I, I'm I'm going to sort of slightly sit on the fence with those two when he's not if he's not taking any wickets. But going at seven and over for seven overs yesterday, I I, I think out of everyone he's done the least to justify his selection in the side for the next series. Yeah, it, it's a sad and curious case. I think Moeen Ali. I mean, he looks miles away from the red ball side, the white ball side. I mean, he, he was in that he's- World Cup. He's moved a step further away. He he he's still part of the main England setup with the ODI side, but I really wanted to see him come in and take the bull by the horns against a side which ultimately isn't part of the elite level. He he's a senior player within that squad that ODI squad for the series just gone against Ireland. You know, he was on the podium, although he didn't play, I don't believe, in the World Cup final. He's on the podium, he was in the squad, he was very much part of the setup for England in that tournament. I don't think, if you're an England selector now, that you can consider him part of that sort of elite cohort. It's a, As I say, it's a sad and curious case. It's difficult to pinpoint exactly what the catalyst for this just absolute nosediving form is. I remember watching him for Worcester, I think it was the back end of last year, um, and he was absolutely flaying it everywhere with the bat. And, and you just thought, there's the player. There's the player that we all know is there and that we absolutely cherish to watch, you know, in sort of 2017 or whatever. It, it, you can't say he's played too much cricket. No one's played any cricket recently. I, 
I, I'm at a complete loss as to as to what is the catalyst for his nosedive. But I, all I can say is it is an incredibly sad thing to watch happen to a player with unquestionable natural talent and ability, and who also is just glorious when he when he's playing well. I don't think there are many players in world cricket that are as languid and elegant as Moeen Ali with the bat and with the ball. You know, you talk about he didn't go for uh, many runs in one of these ODIs, but actually Moeen Ali, when bowling at his best, is a real wicked threat, especially bowling to left-handers, turning some big and not turning others. He's a shadow of the player he once was, and, and I mean, I'd really love someone to tell us why, but I don't think they can. I don't think anyone can. I think our analysis needs to be taken with a little bit of a pinch of salt, given that it's the first matches of the uh, matches of the summer and as we know with ODI cricket you can't judge performance off a small sample size it has to be a much a much larger one in effect to to make the most of the of the potential randomness in the batting performances but yeah with Moeen you really felt that the opportunities that he had coming in with the bat were the times for him to just what he used to do which would be just take the game away from sides by producing a a 30 off 20 or a 40 off uh, 40 off 30 something like that but unfortunately he's not quite managed to do it whether actually he he can still perform that role of coming in and tiding over the overs in the middle of the innings could well be the case i mean he 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 was going for a decent economy rate in the first two uh, first two odis but i also sense that there are other players out there who can do that i just want to see something which shows that he is the one who to be undroppable that he is a, a second all-rounder in that side alongside Stokes and he can he can do it when called upon yeah I mean what I, I don't know what I don't know what the case for selecting him is now I mean if you're Liam Dawson Liam Dawson has performed incredibly well in an England shirt is not the same natural batting talent as Moeen isn't he anywhere close to the same natural batting talent as Moeen but Moeen Allian hasn't scored any runs for ages and, and Liam Dawson is a competent batsman and, and a, you know, a more reliable spin bowler who go, doesn't go for many runs, still spins the ball, has performed well in an England shirt. I see not why you would pick Moen Ali at the moment. I really don't. And equally, England have less of a need for the batting in a way. I know we're complaining the fact that Moen didn't come in and get any runs, but generally speaking, the batting depth is, is very strong and you'd imagine what they do with the ball is all the more important. But remains to be seen. So uh, hopefully, I think everyone sort of wants to see Moeen get back on the horse, not just in being selected, but going out there and doing the stuff that he's always he, he's done so well for England for the best part of half a decade. But remains to be seen. I think that's uh, I think that's everything we've got for today. I Can I say one thing quickly? Go ahead. Well, actually, you need to edit out this question. Why was Owen Morgan not on the field? He trained his groin. Trained so his groin. Okay. So Moeen well, actually then became the captain on the field. My point is this. I feel like Owen Morgan, within this, within the last ODI, just cemented his status as, as this like ultra-wise Jedi warrior, cricket brain, just alpha legend. Because like he got a hundred in seemingly like no balls, sort of set up the game for the rest of the team to go on and get 400. It was like he was sort of challenging, beckoning the players beneath him that really needed a performance. You know, to say, go on, get us 400, get us to a position where we don't need, where, where, where you almost don't need me on the field. And I appreciate he strained his groin, so that's why he wasn't on the field. But part of me wonders whether he just thought, well, actually, if I just Let's sit on the side, yeah, if we lose, right, 
well, we we should have we had enough runs to win. So it just makes it just it just consolidates the idea that I am this cricketing guru, this this tactical genius that without which England are just you know unable to defend over three hundred on a on a ground with very large boundaries. Um, and it also enables him. I thought he looked incredibly statesmanlike. Did he not? When the when the sky camera just panned, he just sort of looked wise and and serene and statesmanlike. And and it, and in, and in, and then if England won, then you know, well, he set up the game. He was the top scorer. He's imbued those players with the tactical skills and nous to 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 you know make a great score and and, and defend it. I just thought he Owen Morgan is the only player to have come out of that game from an England perspective. I think with his stop even higher somehow. He seems a better captain without even captaining, which I find incredible. It's an interesting player, Morgan. When you when you drill into the numbers, the numbers are impressive, but don't quite do justice to his impact on the English side. He, he's ultimately, and I think I think this actually is very difficult to argue against. He's the most important ODI player that England have ever had, both in terms of his consistency and the impact that he's had holistically on the team. Yeah. Okay. I, I definitely see the strength of the argument. I think that, you know, there'll, there'll be a number of names that you could chuck into the hat uh, that Go would on. perhaps argue against it. I mean, well, look, Mr. Stokes is quite a good player, without which would we have won the World Cup. But I concede, and I anticipate your response being, without Owen Morgan, would we have been in, in any position to have won the World Cup? Almost certainly not. I mean, he was... If, if any, he was Andrew Strauss, if Andrew Strauss should take some responsibility for England's World Cup winner, and I think he should, from changing the ODI culture, Owen Morgan was the Andrew Strauss figure from within the England team. So he was absolutely pivotal, and without which England wouldn't have won the World Cup. They wouldn't be playing sexy, explosive cricket in powder blue. So I concede your point. I, I, I still think that it is an argument to be had. It's, it's, you know, it's not a cut. It's not an open and closed case. But he... I think just, just just to drill down on how right I am. Go on. Not just not just off the field. Like you, you, you describe him as looking like this sort of statesman-like figure sitting on the side and watching what happens. Morgan was the playing source on the field for the that change in momentum that England had. And this isn't just a coach down thing. This is this is a captain down thing. And he set the precedent and example for how England were ultimately going to play across that whole World Cup cycle. And I imagine if he continues to play well, he could well be captain them in them in four years' time because he doesn't seem to have any signs of... Uh, three years' time, sorry. Oh, yeah. I mean, 100%. Of slowing down. But if you, if you do drill into his numbers, I think what's really interesting is that if you, like many other England players, split his career into a pre-2015 and 2015 and onwards because... Prior to 2015, or the last game, from the last game backwards, the 2015 World Cup, he averaged about 35 and a half. His strike rate was about 85. By all means, very decent numbers. In the period after that to now, not including yesterday's game, he averaged 45 at a strike rate of almost exactly 100, 99 and a half. Now, if there's a player who doesn't exemplify that, change in momentum of a run rate of great of greater than an extra runner ball and a high of an average 10 higher then i don't think i don't think there's another one and i think in given the change of approach that england have given to odi cricket over the past five years i mean you could arguably argue that they're 
one of the most important cricketing sides of the past 30 years. Morgan's been so central to that that I think when he does eventually retire, then I think he deserves all the praise that he gets. He is the Jedi master. He is the he is the creator of change. I completely agree with what you're saying about uh, this England side being one of the most important sides in ODI cricket for a very long time. This England side have changed what is considered, uh, you know, uh, a, a defendable total. He changed what's considered possible. Yes, yes, exactly. I mean, we're talking about five hundred. We were talking about five hundred before the start of the World Cup. We then realised that actually in England, English conditions, it, it's, with ten thirty starts which was the start, you know, the start times during that tournament, uh, that that was very difficult to do. That conversation would not have been happening if it wasn't for Joe, uh, Joe Root's England, Owen Morgan's England. You know, some of the, 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 the plus 400 scores that that side have produced over the last four and a bit years have been absolutely astonishing. And they have changed the conversation. They have changed the face. They've changed the face of white ball cricket in 50 over format. You know, going into, it's a long time until the next World Cup. But I think the other sides in the world do have a lot of catching up to do if they want if they want to uh, meet the standard that Owen Morgan's side have set, and and he deserves an enormous amount of credit for that. I think Andrew Strauss does as well because he also imbued the side with that sort of that sort of uh, that sort of culture, that white ball culture. But look, Owen, Owen Morgan is the man. He, he is the he is the Barack Obama of white ball cricket. I love him. He's a statesman. He's a top boy. He's a legend. You know, he deserves to go down in the pantheon of great captains. He is right up there. There is no doubt. There is no doubt. And he's Irish. <laughs> this makes it. Yeah, yeah. Irish. It makes it almost more, more, more how incredible. Good, uh, how good would Irish cricket be if he was their captain? It'd probably be. I think they could. Uh, they could compete with the West Indies on a regular basis, potentially. Yeah, probably. Uh, but, uh, but we'll we'll end it there. Thank you very much uh, for listening to us today, and uh, apologise if you uh, if you didn't anticipate a ten minute chat about about how good England's ODI side are uh, or have been just after they've uh, been defeated by Ireland. Uh, but a uh, great victory for the Irish, and we'll be back next week uh, with uh, talking about the end of the first test w- between England and Pakistan, as the, uh, the the cricket the cricket season just suddenly just keeps on going, doesn't it? It's just like every time it's like again, again, it's just there. again, week after week. There's oh, there's like there's no let up to it, and in a way, I don't think I can do this all year round, but I'm a fan of it for now. It's it's the what's the Peter Gay sketch about dunking the hop the 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 marine hobnob you know when you you got the hobnob it's the marine of biscuits and it's just like dunk me again dunk me again it's, this is what we are we are the hobnob and we're being dunked in the cricket tea oh, I love yeah, it in I the, love it. Uh, submerged amongst the uh, amongst the cricket tea wanting to go again and again uh, but again. But I don't think we could do it forever. But we will, we will, we will maintain our our internal structure for as long as possible. Right, we'll be back with you next week. See you then. Goodbye. He's not quite sexy enough.